The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Being Bumo, a podcast for the modern parent that wants to be the best version of themselves while being the best parents they can be for their kids. We'll be spotlighting parents and experts who are not only inspiring, but also willing to share with us how it really is. Because as we all know, parenting can be equally as rewarding as it is challenging. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. So the other day, my daughter asked me, mommy, how are babies made? And it completely caught me off guard and I had no idea how to answer it on the spot. That is why I am so excited to have Dr. Pressman on our episode today. A lot of you guys may know her from her incredible podcast, Raising Good Humans, in my opinion, one of the best parenting podcasts out there. She is a developmental psychologist, a parent to two kids, educator, assistant clinical professor, and co-founder of Mount Sinai Parenting Center. So today we talk about how to raise good little confident humans and how to actually explain those tough questions like how a baby is actually made to a child or a toddler or a kid. I personally learned so much from this episode and hope you guys will too. With that said, here's our conversation. Hi, Dr. Lisa. Welcome to Being Bumo Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Ever since I discovered you, I did a deep kind of binge on your podcast and it's so good. I just have to say that I'm fangirling right now. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm fangirling back at you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we're going to dive right into it. But before we do, I'm going to ask you a little icebreaker because I'm personally very curious about the first thing that you did this morning. Well, the first thing I did this morning was I had a 5 a.m. call um, because I was working on East Coast time. So I really embarrassingly did that thing where you set the alarm and wear your pajamas on the bottom and, and uh, <laughs> did it. It wasn't a call. It was a Zoom. So did that with the hospital that I work at. <laughs> well, it's 5 a.m. So I don't I don't blame you. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't an exciting morning. I was thinking, oh, I mean, technically, that's what I did right when I opened my eyes. And then I started my morning after that. Awesome. And so do you spend most of your days doing your psychiatry work? Do you do a lot of podcasting during the day? Like, I just want to know, like, how your schedule is, just because I'm sure you're incredibly busy during these times. Well, I have my two girls. I mean, I think we're all kind of in the same boat. But so I have my two girls um, at home with me doing their school remotely. Um, And so my days are kind of flexible and then I usually do East Coast work at the um, hospital. I work at the Mount Sinai Parenting Center Mm. in New York from like 5 or 6 a.m. for before the day kind of starts. And then, um, and that's where I'm teaching and writing and doing research. And then the rest of the day I spend trying to see clients or I run mothers groups and parents groups that just meet monthly to check in based on their kids' ages. And I thought those would end with the pandemic because usually they were in person, but they've actually expanded and it's been really wonderful. So I haven't felt isolated at all, but I I kind of hover, I do um, sort of three jobs, I guess, is my work with parents individually and then my work at the hospital and the podcast, which um, I try to do, but that's usually a one day a week kind of thing. Got it. Now that we're kind of talking about what you do, I would love to kind of learn about how you got into what you do. Uh, You know, you do developmental psychology, really focus on parenting. How did you get into all of this? I weirdly got into it before I had kids, which I don't know what I was thinking, but (laughs) I was doing like intro to all the different branches of psychology when I was younger and I really knew that I wanted to work with children or I thought I did. And I took, you know, all of the, there are so many different kinds of psychology when people say they're a psychologist. So I'm a psychologist, but I'm developmental. There's clinical, there's counseling, there's, there's so many, there's educational, there's so many different things. People don't realize it's like very specific. 
And I took um, this course with someone who ended up becoming my first mentor. And I just, it was like a date that went really well. I just fell in love with the idea of studying how humans grow from birth through adulthood. And the thing that I found most exciting about it as I was becoming um, sort of coming into my own in graduate school was the idea that the most powerful environment that your kids have is the parenting environment for better or for worse. Some people that feels like really stressful for other people. It's like, Oh, so even if everything's awful, I can have an impact. And that's kind of where I like to look at it. Not that it's all, you know, like things are your fault, but actually that when everything's going wrong, just that, that connection you have with your child can be the difference between not doing well and thriving. And so I got really interested in the experience of the parent and that transition into parenting and being able to give the research that I had that kind of gets stuck in the ivory tower sometimes to families, especially because then I got pregnant And a friend of mine was also pregnant from, she had finished graduate school before me and she was doing her postdoc. And basically we were like asking each other all the questions and reading articles and hearing things in the playground. And we were just like, wait, the research is saying different things than we're hearing from everybody. And so Mm. we keep going to each other. It would be so nice to have a space where there was like, here's the best we can do science-wise. And then here's the support for parents. And then I think over the years, it's um, evolved as I've learned how little I know. <laughs> and, um, and then I started a parenting center at Mount Sinai Hospital because I, I felt like there was a wild, I started teaching the medical stu- the residents and I was like, wait, you don't already learn this in medical school? All the social, emotional, intellectual growth of humans and behavioral right. stuff. So that's where I sort of started doing that on the other side of my job. That's awesome. And then you launched Raising Good Humans, your incredible podcast. And can we just go into that? Like, how do we raise good humans? How, I mean, I think there's this this pressure on parents, as you mentioned, you know, some people find it comforting and some people find it kind of scary. And a fact that it all starts really with our relationship with the kids. So what is a fundamental, I guess, basics that parents need to know to raise good humans? Well, it does sound like a high pressure. Like I could see people thinking like, ah, <laughs> that's too much. But the, I think the really cool thing about what I do is that I feel like there's actually, yes, there's a ton you can do as frosting and sprinkles and everything. But fundamentally, it's about taking a deep breath and being available to see your child for who they are and let them unfold as as they are and have them know that you love them no matter what and have the boundaries to help them, you know, grow with some kind of adult container. So they don't end up like too free um, before they're ready. And that's it. (laughs) So is that the winning formula you would say? Like the, is there a, a formula that you could, I guess, quote unquote, prescribe a parent to say, to do something, whether it be like, building a certain type of relationship that will always work at the end of the day to make these little ones feel comforted or safe. Is there a formula? I mean, in general, I don't think there's a formula for all the little things. And I think everybody that says there is, is trying to sell you something, mm-hmm. but the broad formula that is developmental science is you need sensitivity and boundaries from the one loving caregiver. And if you have that, the rest is going to unfold as well as it can. So um, I think the formula, I always say all feelings are welcome, all behaviors are not. Mm. And that's what you need to know. And the rest, of course, I'm myself and many others are there for support and peers and, you know, family, and you can get wisdom about everything. And I certainly have had my share of clients who just want to be told what to do when their kid won't sleep or potty training, or they're getting bullied at school. But on balance, if you just go back to, did I allow my child to feel whatever they're feeling? And did I say when there's something in their behavior that needs to be shifted 
because I've set boundaries. And if I've done those two things, I'm doing like the formula. Mm, I love that. So just allowing them to be and allowing them to feel the emotions that they are feeling without having to, because I think for us as parents, especially myself, I just want them sometimes to be happy, right? Like if they're having a bad moment, you're just like, why, why are you sad? But instead of asking those type of questions, it's just allowing them to be sad or allowing them to be angry. Right. Yeah. And, and if they're open to it, especially with younger ones who don't necessarily have the language for naming their feelings, but even adults, you know, sometimes are like, I don't know what's going on with me. And Mm -hmm. it takes an outside eye to say, I think what's going on. I wonder if you're angry right now or something, you're feeling in your stomach or whatever. So naming how they're feeling and letting that be. And, you know, it's a huge gift when your child, for example, is sad for them to know that that's okay to feel that sad and that it doesn't put you into a tailspin of, or like, you don't have to do a dance to make them happy because you know, they're going to be okay because they're going to feel sad right now. And like all feelings, they come and go. And there's something that feels unpleasant about that to say the least when you have, when you're watching your child feel unhappy, like we just want to fix it. But if we fast forward to later in life, when they're high schoolers or when they're 25, if they think feeling that those bad feelings, let's, let's, I mean, I don't want to put the judgment on them, but for we all understand what I mean. Right, right. When they're feeling those feelings that you want to take away, if they've learned that, okay, I'm sobbing right now and sad and that's going to go away. And then I'll feel different probably in about an hour, Mm. maybe in a few weeks, maybe in a few minutes. There's a comfort in that, that it doesn't, that it wasn't something you grew up having to put away because it wasn't acceptable or that you panicked because your parents were like, oh, you can't handle this. I have to fix this for you. Mm. So it's a real gift. It's just something to remind ourselves when we are like, oh, I hate this. Feel. Like, I don't love, I don't like seeing my kids upset. It's so gutting. Right. It is. <laughs> it's much easier to kind of like distract them and like, yeah. be like, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, we just have to kind of let them be and let them feel those emotions. We all have heard about clean beauty products from makeup to skincare, but what about clean beauty supplements? Which is why I want to introduce you guys to Aura Organic, a plant-based organic nutrition company with an incredible ingestible beauty line. This line of five products was developed to help you feel beautiful from the inside out with potent plant-based ingredients that support glowing skin, hair, and nails. I've been using it for the past few months, and as a busy mom, I could really see and feel the difference. Aura Organic believes in beauty from within and harnessing the earth's most powerful plant to help you transform your health. Aura is here to help you get to the root of the common beauty struggles that we all face with products that can help with hormonal acne, dry, irritated skin, wrinkle and fine lines, which I'm actually seeing more than ever, and sun-damaged skin. They have five unique products in the line, something for everyone. Aura's Ingestible Beauty Line was created to offer more and be easier to manage than your regular routine with innovative plant-based nutritional products to support skin, hair, and nails and health from within, which is great for busy moms like me. I'm one of those parents that forget about things so easily. If I don't see it, then I probably won't take it. So here's a little tip that I do. To make it extra simple, I actually keep my Aura Beauty products on my bathroom counter so I could actually see them. And I take them while I'm doing my skincare routine and my makeup. My personal favorite product is Aloe Gorgeous. Get it? Aloe Gorgeous. Which is a plant-based collagen booster. I usually put it into my morning coffee. It's made out of aloe vera and vitamin C, which are ingredients that act as a precursor for strong, healthy collagen. It actually contains ingredients that help smooth the appearance of wrinkles and fine lines. And look, it's a cleaner version of collagen. You can find Aura Organic at Ulta, Whole Foods, and The Vitamin Shop. You can also shop online at www.ora.organic and use code BUMO, B-U-M-O, at checkout for 15% off your purchase. You talk about Goldilocks parenting, which is actually my first time ever hearing about this concept. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And first of all, what is Goldilocks parenting? 
So it's a it's something that um, a couple of really brilliant researchers came up with at the University of Minnesota, and they're really um, executive function researchers. But what they were looking at specifically was something that's let the little more boring sounding autonomy supportive parenting. And it kind of goes back to what I was just saying. If you break it down, which is it's not your, you know, if you're too sensitive that you don't give boundaries because you're afraid of your child not being comfortable with the feeling that they aren't allowed to do something, mm. then it's not quite right. And if you're not sensitive enough and you just are like, these are the boundaries, this is what I expect of you, and I don't care how you feel, it's not quite right. That just right spot is, I see how you feel, I understand, and here are the boundaries. So that's Goldilocks parenting. That's an example. But if you think about like practically speaking, one way to think about how to support your child's growing autonomy is where they start to get to the point where they feel like I have agency, I can make good decisions, and I'm responsible for my decisions. You don't want to do for your kids things they can already do. Mm. And so like if you have a toddler and they know how to put their hat on, which they probably don't. So don't panic. <laughs> That's a bad example. Let's say they know how to, uh, let's say you have a three-year-old and they know how to put their, their shoe on. Don't put their shoe on for them. Let mm. them have that. Let them own that. It'll take longer. So give more space to getting ready and everything, but let them do for themselves what they can already do. And then you want to guide and encourage them to do things they can almost do. And lastly, you want to model and support them for things that they can't do. So of course, they're not going to just wake up and be able to put their shoes on and eat, you know, feed themselves. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. It's, it's thinking about like, where are they in that? And have I taught them? Once I've modeled and taught them, let them be free to do it and fall on their face a little bit. So I have a question with that then, because today, this morning is a perfect example. I have two little ones as well, one six-year-old and one two-year-old. The six-year-old is fully like capable of getting herself dressed in the morning. Um, but because she sees me getting her little sister dressed because her sister is not capable, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, this is literally every Monday morning, mm-hmm. um, she does not want to get dressed herself. She wants me to do it for her. And because of time constraints and like being late, I'm just like, okay, let's, I'll, I'll just do it. Like, hurry, let, let's go. So in that case, what do I do? So in that case, and, and that, here's the thing. I should have said, you should throw out 25, 30% of what I say out of the gate, right? Like, because <laughs> it's like, there's reality too. I mean, I've had many experiences where I'm doing something and friends are like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that's the right way to do it. And I'm like, mm. it's not, I'm in a rush or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the kids are fine. But I would say when you can, pick a day like Saturday or Sunday when you're not in a rush and practice waiting for her to take her time, but she's getting dressed. Mm. And if she doesn't want to do it herself, you want to let her know. I know it's hard because you see that I'm dressing your, is it your sister, little sister, Mm -hmm. your baby sister. And she doesn't have the ability right now. Her fingers don't have fine motor skills that can do it. It's really hard for her. She's going to get it soon, but I have to teach her. You know how to do it. So you're going to do it yourself. And then it might take a little bit longer and I'll wait for you. And if she's mad about it, then the message for her is you're really mad about it. You still need to get dressed. Mm. And so it's a weekend. So that's a boundary, right? That's a boundary. boundary. Exactly. The sensitivity part is noticing that it sucks to be the big sister sometimes. And the boundary part is you still have to get dressed by yourself. Mm. And then when it gets to the weekday, look, it's a weird time because some kids aren't going to school. But if you are going out the door, sometimes it takes saying, we're going at this time either way. You need to get dressed or we can carry your stuff in a bag and you can get dressed at school. It won't happen because most kids by six will be like, ah, Ah, that's that's embarrassing. (laughs) And so it's just, it's like have a couple uncomfortable days where you're not in a rush Mm. and you move on. And that boundary will be clear. If you're wishy-washy about it, then they are like, today I'm going to test again because I feel like I'm almost going to get her to do it. 
And that also brings me back to parenting roles then, right? So I see this a lot. And this is something that I also personally go through is the mom is a discipliner usually, Mm -hmm. at least in our household. And the dad is the fun dad, right? Mm -hmm. But there are times when the dad wants to put set rules, but because dad is always a fun dad, all of a sudden they don't really listen to him when he wants to set rules. So they kind of get away with things, right? So would you recommend, or I would love to hear your thoughts on, do you believe that parents should have specific roles and stick to those roles or can they kind of blend? It's a great question. I have to think about this. I mean, I think it's very hard for any of us to stay in our role mm-hmm. all the time. In the case of your husband, if he sees, sometimes I need them to listen to me and they do not take me seriously, then one of his roles can be to practice setting boundaries a little bit more often mm-hmm. and see how it goes. And I think we all wear different hats at different times, but right. the more predictable you can be, so the more you, have the same response to challenges, the easier it is for kids. So if some mornings he's like, I'm going to be fun. And some mornings he lays down the law, that's confusing. Right. But if it's, but if it's like, okay, in the mornings, I'm business dad. I got to get out the door. <laughs> but when I see you in the afternoon, I'm going to be party dad. That's mm-hmm. fine. You just want in the experience of their day-to-day life for it not to be just mayhem. Like who who's going to say yes today? That right. can get confusing. So just being consistent. Consistency is super important to yeah. feel safe. So let's talk about the parent-child relationship as I know this is something that you talk a lot about and talk about the importance of that. What does a healthy relationship with a child look like? And you know, I think a lot of parents, including myself, when we think of healthy relationships, um, we oftentimes think they trust me, they will listen to me with what I say, but we all know that it doesn't really go according to plan more often than not. So so what does it look like? What does a healthy relationship with a child looks like? And I, I'm sure it changes and it evolves as they grow. As it should, right? Because mm-hmm. if you look at what a, to- a toddler should be checking in with you and not just leaving, if a teenager is constantly checking in with you, is this okay? Is this okay? They are having problems becoming more, having more agency. So it's absolutely going to shift over time as it should. All relationships evolve. Um, I would say we're not going to go into attachment theory and secure attachment, but you do want from as early as you start thinking about it, you want to have a message to the person, your loved one. And this is true in adult relationships too, but it starts with the foundation of what you experienced as a child. Mm. Like, first of all, am I safe with this person? Like you said, you need to know that their physical and mental safety is your top priority. And then after that, do I have the permission to feel how I feel and be who I am? So that might be that, uh, you know, there's a kid who's like really upset because they didn't get to do something or a friend made them mad. And there's like two ways to respond. There's the way of like, you will not be upset about this. Mm. You know, the rules or there's a book pinkalicious. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a poem in it and she's like, or a rhyme. And she says, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And I always would read that because it was really popular when my little one was little. And I was like, no, you get what you get and you might get upset Mm. and that's fine. You're still going to get what you get. And I think that's where that relationship is. That's the part where it's like, you're allowed to be who you are. And I'm allowed to keep those boundaries going back to that because that's what keeps you safe. So the safety and being able to be emotionally who you are and kind of accepted for who you are, even if your behaviors aren't acceptable. And then after that, like having a person who knows how to help you feel soothed and calm. Dan Siegel, who's a beautiful child psychiatrist, has a great four S's. You know, kids need to feel safe, seen, soothed, and that leads to security. And that Mm. kind of is it in a nutshell. Wait, safe, Safe, seen, seen, soothed, soothed, secure. Secure. Oh, that's really nice. You know you're safe. 
and you know that who you are, like your parents understand you, they're tr- or at least if they don't, they really want to, you have a curiosity. That's why sentences like, I wonder what it would feel like to, or I wonder if you're feeling, you know, with your six-year-old, you might say that, not your two-year-old, you'd say, this is how you're feeling. <laughs> um, because they don't know how to get into the psychology of, of their feelings. But, you know, being curious, I'm curious, how did it feel when you put that puzzle piece in there? Or I'm curious what it felt like when your friend yelled at you at the playground so that you're not just like telling kids everything, but you're trying to pull information from them. I like that. I like that Mm -hmm. sentence a lot because I feel like oftentimes we're so used to be like, how do you feel about this? But then kids, I don't know if this is just my kid, but she's always like, good. Right. It's never just your kid. Whenever you wonder, (laughs) is it it me or just my kid? It never is. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, you can't be good every single time. Like, and I think it's also one, like they just don't really know how to express themselves at that age. (laughs) But then also maybe because they're seeing it after us, like modeling it after us as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Because whenever people are like, how are you? Oh, good. But then I'm like, I don't want them to feel good all the time, right? So I like that sentence of, I wonder, because it just seems more open versus like, you know, what they're used to hearing. It's like, how are you good, right? It's like, it keeps the door open for curiosity so that forever they're not like, oh, you need to know how I feel because you're checking the box. Did you check in with me? But you're actually like, no, I'm curious. I want to get to know you as a person. Mm. So I think that, the, those are the ways that we cultivate from birth through adulthood. Adulthood, yeah. Relationships, and it just changes in the translation as they get older. For those of you that don't know me, I am a skincare enthusiast. My one go-to self-care ritual is doing my skincare once the kids are down for bed. It's something I look forward to every single day. So I want to introduce you guys to Milk and Honey. It's a line of non-toxic, effective, and safe bath, body, and skincare made in small batches in Austin, Texas. Milk and Honey sources ingredients as hyper clean as possible. That means choosing organic above all else and making thoughtful, informed choices on safe, synthetic ingredients when organic isn't possible. Milk and Honey's products are developed alongside their in-house team of esthetician at Milk and Honey Spa. And fun fact, they're actually opening up their very first spa location outside of Texas in Los Angeles in Brentwood, which I will definitely be visiting in March 2021. And will utilize their complete product collection and offer their full range of massage and body treatments, facials and hydrofacials, medical aesthetics, waxing, manicures and pedicures. I mean, it sounds like a dream and something that I need right now. My personal favorite product is their Blue Tansy Balm. It's so unique and velvety. I absolutely love it. And they're a milk bath. Make sure to check them out at milkandhoney.com and enjoy 15% off with code BUMO15. B-U-M-O-15. When I first became a mom and learned about all the harmful ingredients in some skincare products and also kids' skincare products, it completely surprised me. Did you know that the FDA bans only 12 potentially harmful ingredients in skincare products? Scary, right? I was introduced to a brand called Papet when I had my second child and wish it came into my life sooner. Papet actually bans more than 2,000 ingredients, ensuring products are safe, effective, and use only non-toxic ingredients available. Papet is a clean baby and mom care brand with a mission to give every family the best start. We all want what's best for our children, and that includes using only the safest products on their delicate skin. Pepet's products are also EWG verified, vegan, hypoallergenic, sustainable, and pediatrician and dermatologist approved. All of Pepet's products are made with a key ingredient, squalene. Pepet has quickly become a customer favorite for its ultra gentle baby lotions, oil, and wash. And right now you can score 30% off its entire collection of personal care items. Visit pipettebaby.com and get 30% off with the code BUMO, B-U-M-O. Do you feel like the new generation of parents, like kind of us, I guess you can say. um, Bless you that we're, I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we we all have, you know, we're raising little ones at this point, right? But then I just feel like the 
generation before us, they had such a specific role in parenting and a different view in parenting, which is kind of the opposite of what we are trying to teach ourselves and our kids, which is like being open and, you know, listening and letting them feel how they feel. Whereas with my strict Asian parents, and I'm sure it's not just my Asian parents, it's like almost all parents out there, right? (laughs) It's like, why do you feel this way? You know, you you know, you should be thankful that you have all these things or you should feel happy that you get to play with your friends. And like, I catch myself thinking those things as well, right? With my kids, but because I'm so much more aware of like their feelings and all the new, I guess, studies out there, like, is it more difficult for us? Because it's like, we're kind of going against what we've learned as children, right? From our parents. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, First of all, I think a great sort of plan or to get your antennas up is if you find the urge to say, you should feel blank. Mm. It's always like, which is how so many people grew up. This is how mm-hmm. you should feel and still grow up. Anytime anybody tells you how you should feel, they're well, these parents are well-meaning, right? They want you to feel this way. What they mean is, I want you to feel grateful or I mm-hmm. want you to feel happy. Um, but you don't control how someone else feels mm-hmm. in the whole forever. I mean, one of the biggest lessons I think we learn as parents, as partners, just in general is like, oh, I can't control anything that anybody else says, does, feels. Like I can do my best to guide, but you can't control feelings. So the minute the words you should feel are even around, floating around, that's just a moment to just check in with yourself and say, oh, wait, did I just try to control their feelings? Mm. And what do I really mean? Okay. What I really mean is I wish you felt more grateful. I wonder what I can do to help you feel more grateful. And you wouldn't say that to the child, but you'd say it in your head. Mm. But I do think it's hard because I would say eighties, nineties parenting even went in two directions. Either it was like, you are the most important, amazing person in the world and lift, 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 because that's how we built confidence, which was like created a generation of kids who had confused confidence, Mm -hmm. like felt entitled, but didn't have the like Mm -hmm. stuff to back it up. Like the competence that really creates confidence because that wasn't part of the culture or the other side of just like really strict because I said so, and this is how you should feel. And it is somewhat culturally dependent. You know, like I would say, you know, my parents aired on like Jewish permissive. <laughs> You're so important. You're mm. the most important person. And it's like, thanks. Cause then you <laughs> go to the world and you're like, hi, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but I'm number one. No. Okay. <laughs> and it's the worst because those kids are like, oh my God, like nobody's listening mm. to my parents. <laughs> and I think very typically, I think Asian parents are on the other side of that, of typically more authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard when you've been raised, I'm just using those two for us, but like when you've been raised with an experience of parenting, that's in your system. Like that is your go-to place. Some of it you probably agree with and some of it you don't, but it's, that's where we naturally lean towards. So that's an added challenge when you're told, uh, no, no, <laughs> that's not, you know, that's not going to be as, that's not going to cultivate what you're hoping to cultivate in a relationship on, in either of those examples. But there's also some wonderful stuff in there and you don't want to throw out your history of like the experience you had with your parenting. Although some people do, in which case, fine, throw it out. Mm-hmm. But there's there's got to be good stuff to borrow. I think this generation of parenting, the pressure is like, we know and so do this so that you can be this amazing, perfect parent. And it's actually like, we don't know a whole lot. (laughs) Which also kind of goes into this next question that I had for you, which is you talk about how parents don't always necessarily need to know everything nor be the expert. And it's actually important for kids to see parents learning alongside them um, instead of always being the expert. Why do you say that? Well, I think this happens even 
for me, like I feel like I'm always learning and evolving. Hopefully, like you still go to conferences and try to continue to look at research and do research and you find out, oh, all that stuff I've been thinking about, whatever, I'm I'm kind of changing a little bit or I'm shifting with the times. And I think it's important that kids understand we don't know all of these, we don't have all the answers in the world. Like when they're having a problem with a friend, we can use our experience and try to help them out. But sometimes we can just listen and say, well, what do you think? What do you want to do about this? Mm. And let them, first of all, figure it out, but out loud with you so that you can help them have like a plan, Mm. but also so that you really can learn because if they think they're supposed to be finished when they turn 18 and go off into the world, again, what a bummer. Because then you're like, how many of us feel like I still in my 40s am like, wait, if I'm in charge of like writing an article or teaching something, I'm like, who's checking my work? I'm still like, oh my God, why am I the last? Like you never get over that feeling of, like maybe you have an imposter syndrome where you're just like, Mm. I don't know, or I think I know, but I'm not entirely sure that part of that comes from the idea that we were sold a bill of goods that like you hit a certain adulthood and you're like, I've got this. Now I know everything and I can teach it to you. And it feels so much better to imagine a world where you knew out of the gate, like you're, you're always a work in progress. Our brains are always growing, although they're, you know, on the decline (laughs) after 20, to 29, but um, they're growing in wisdom. (laughs) So I think it's important for kids to see that we're open to learning and that they have stuff to offer because first, it doesn't put that pressure on them to be finished. And second, they do have stuff to offer. I don't know anything about a lot of technology. So I have to ask my 14-year-old all the time. And she's like always laughing at me. But I would never be able to figure that out in the same way. It's just teach me what you know about this. Which is also kind of nice because it takes some sort of pressure off of the parent. Yeah. And just being able to be instead of having the pressure to be this perfect parent that knows everything, this little expert, right? So yeah. yeah, I mean that that's like a sense of relief for me. My kids are still young, but as they get older, I'm sure. I'm not going to know a lot of stuff. And instead of trying pretending to know, it's right. just like, okay, teach me. Right. Yeah. And you could say, let, we're like, let's look it up together. The other thing is you're, you've got kids like three-year-olds start to kind of ask about death and babies, like how babies are oh made. Oh my gosh. I need to ask you a question right now. This reminds me. <laughs> I actually posted on my social media cause I like, she totally caught me off guard. Uh, but th- your question actually just reminded me. The other day we were driving and out of nowhere, my daughter, my six-year-old was like, mommy, where are babies from? How do, how are they born? And I was like, oh gosh, okay. What can I think of right now? Cause it was literally on the spur of the moment. I didn't have time to prepare for this. So I was just like, oh, they're from your, your belly. They come from your belly. And she's like, but how did they get there? And I was like, well, yeah, that's a good question. Well, when two people are in love, they make a baby. Does that make sense? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and so there was a sense of relief because I was like, okay, I think that was enough for her at the moment, but I know it's going to come back. Yeah. Um, so how do you explain something like that? And you don't have to go into specifics, but when I, I'm just curious because as they grow, their little minds grow, they want real answers, right? They want to know real things. So is it okay to, to just kind of let it loose and let them know at a certain age? Yeah. I mean, I think that that one is a perfect example of a time where you might actually know the, I mean, I think you do know the answer, (laughs) (laughs) I hope, but you might not know how to say it. So there's an, I don't know in there because you're like, this which is like every parent, you're just like, I can't believe this question just happened. Even though of course we all know it's going to happen, but you just, it comes so fast. Right. And so I think those are moments where you can say, you know what? I'm not sure I know how to answer that right now. I love the question and I'm going to get back to you. 
That is Mm. always okay to say so that you just have time to take a breath and think of what you're going to say, but then you do have to go back to them, even if they don't remind you. I think um, also with those kinds of questions, you can say, well, tell me what you think first so that you get a sense of where are they at? Because one kid might be like, because I heard from so-and-so that people bump tummies and that's how you make babies. While another kid might just be like, I was just curious how the DNA got into the body. Like Mm. they have such a, or, and one might be like, well, I just was curious about if it's different for, you know, how does it affect me? Like who knows what they're thinking? So finding out where they are is a good, like, moment for you to get a pause in there. Like to so answer their question with a question. Yes. Answer their question with a question uh-huh. and, and go back to them. Cause these are never just one conversation. Right. Going back in this, let's use her for ex- your daughter, for example, going back and saying, you know, I was thinking about what you asked the other day. And I was wondering what made you think of that and just see where she was at, which mm. can be scary. Cause it's like, well, do I want to know right now? And she might be like, I was just wondering because, you know, I saw somebody had a baby in their belly. And then, Mm. you know, that she's done asking questions, but for another kid, the permission to keep asking questions might be just what they needed. Mm. So, and you need to, you don't want to give too much information because some kids, I remember when I told my seven, now 14 was seven-year-old. I had already told her when she was like three, that a like sperm and an egg come together Mm -hmm. and then they make like, that's how I went. And, and then the, this baby grows, <laughs> an embryo is created and a baby grows. And then eventually the baby comes out. And I said, comes out of the, you know, through a special surgery calls a C-section or out of the vagina. And I remember like that, that seemed like a lot of information, but it mm. was enough. She didn't keep going. And then when she was seven, she was like, I'm still like, how does the, sperm Sperm. get to the egg. If the egg is in, and I was like, you know, and so I said, this is going to sound maybe like something really silly or kind of icky. I'm not sure, but you're not going to, you're definitely going to be surprised. And I explained kind of what happened. And I said, and also please don't talk about this with your friends, but ask me any questions just because their parents might not have talked about it. Mm. And she was like, oh, I'm not going to talk about it ever again. Don't worry. <laughs> like, no thanks. But the weirdest questions came up after that over the years. So like, she didn't say anything again. And then three months later, she was like, where do you do that? Like, <laughs> do you do it in the bathroom? And I was like, oh my God, they don't know anything. Like mm-hmm. every bit of information is brand new. So in her mind, she's like, I'm thinking I did this huge thing. Cause I was like, well, in the case of mommy and daddy, this is how it happened. There are, oh, there are different ways that it happens, but in our case, this is how it happened. But she's like, so in the bathroom? <laughs> like, now she's, so different kinds of questions come up over the years. And then of uh-huh. course, she's 14 now and other-, other Now she gets it. <laughs> so she understands and it still finds it like, you know, yeah. and, and disgusting thing. But I feel like- those things that you are just thinking it's too much for them, they'll tell you if you ask them where they're at. And it's, I think what I'm learning from a lot of parents, because when I posted that, a ton of parents were commenting back. And what I'm hearing is that kids can handle more than we can think. Like they, of course, like they will let us know and you could kind of yeah. sense it if it's too much and it's overloaded and it's just like kind of yeah, right. go, going over them. But for the most part, we shouldn't be scared to be talking about certain things. And that's what I got out of like that little post that I did. Um, Absolutely. And because yeah. because t- if you have that relationship where you're connected, like you're really curious about how they are, you'll see their body language and you'll see if it's too far. Yeah. And you'll stop and you'll say, I'm really glad you asked me. You can always come to me because the content of what you say is irrelevant. You could say the wrong thing. You could say the right thing. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that they know they can come to you for the hard Mm -hmm. questions. That's it. If they can know they can come to you as they get older, like that's the dream because then they're not going to go do or ask or learn from 
um, people that are giving them misinformation. Yeah. You know, I'm going to tell you a funny story and I think it might sound silly, but I think it, it kind of ties into what we're talking about. I have a very close relationship with my mom, but she's always been so scared of us, like knowing too much of anything. And my mom, for the longest time, she told me that the word vagina in Korean was something completely different. It was a made up word basically, (laughs) because she didn't want me to know what it was. Right. And I think that's just her trying to create the safe environment for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this one time I went to my friends that also speak Korean and I was talking about that and I spit that word out and they're like, wait, what is that word? And I told them, I repeated it and they're like, that's not a word. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm, I'm like here at 32 years old, right? I'm 35 now, but at 32 years old, I was like, what? No. That's not the word. <laughs> Pretty much it's, it's, it's poji in Korean, but my mom always told me it was called fongji, which is like, I don't know why. And I asked her, I confronted her. I'm like, mom, why did you, why did you tell me? And she was like, I don't know. Like, I just thought that was better for you. But at 32 years old, I was a little embarrassed, obviously, but it kind of brings me back to modern parenting, right? Of like just telling kids as it is, if it's a vagina, say it's a vagina. If it's a penis, it's a penis, right? And that's okay. Yeah. But it's such a sweet story because the truth is, is like, it just reminds us, like, it's so hard for people if they didn't have that to get comfortable with, right. these are hard things to talk about if that wasn't your experience. Right. And so for her, she was probably like, I think if you don't know what that is, then, and you don't name it, then maybe you won't do anything with it. And if you don't do anything, with it, you won't get in trouble. <laughs> and that I love just- you, mom, if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's so sweet because it's not like she was like, ah, you know, I'm going to keep yeah. knowing it really is like, it's so hard to be a parent and know like how to keep your kids safe. Cause there's some information where you're like, maybe it's just, if you don't know, we won't have to deal with that. Yeah. So that's true. Oh gosh. Well, thank you for letting me share that story. I haven't shared that story on here yet. So <laughs> that's an amazing story. It's such a, also like just incredible example Because I think like the parenting world never takes in, especially in the United States, never takes into account how different, like whatever is right or not is just for this generation, this location and this time and place without acknowledging like all of us have parents who come from completely different stories Mm -hmm. that don't necessarily fit into the like tiny style that we're saying is like a right way. And it's just important to acknowledge. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that it just shows you that there's no one way that's right. Right. Yeah. No one way. So we're coming towards the end of this. I could talk to you forever, but I think, you know, the one question that a lot of parents, at least that listen to our podcast, um, a lot of them are, they have younger kids and right now with the pandemic, everything kind of being at home, everyone kind of working, homeschooling, everything's at home now, right? Is there any advice as far as like routine goes? You talk about the importance of having a routine. Do you have any advice there for parents during these times? Yeah. I mean, heroes of young, like when you said two, I'm like, oh God, (laughs) that is so much harder than, you know, like for me, 11 and 14, they can deal with themselves in a different kind of way. So it's heroic and it's a huge, it's huge. And I think routines can feel burdensome, but they are meant to, I think, help the parents have an easier time. It just feels burdensome in the moment because it's like, oh, there's like so many rules. But actually, if you can carve out, you know, like almost putting a visual on the, door of the bedroom or on the bathroom, on the mirror, or in the different places in the house where there's like three or four steps to getting something done. Like what do we do before bed? And there's like a picture of somebody taking a bath and somebody brushing their teeth and somebody putting, changing their diaper, whatever, that 
there's like things you can point to like, okay, so we know what we're doing right now before bed, we're going to read two books. How many? And we see a picture of two Mm -hmm. books. Okay. So we don't have to argue about, should we do three, just one more? No, we can say, oh, that's tomorrow. Well, you could pick the third book out. We'll read it tomorrow. And so I think having a, a plan with this is, these are the three things we can count on every morning and the three things we can count on every night before bed. You can at least do something that keeps like the day contained in a predictable enough way that even though the rest of the world is absolutely unpredictable, it gives kids a sense of safety and it gives parents a sense that they know that at, if nothing else, they're going to do two books before bed. They're going to sing one song and they're going to do teeth brushing. Like whatever it is, having that safety and security in predicting a few things a day is so tantrum preventing and helpful. Mm. And um, and I think for us, if there are a few things that you can do on autopilot and you know yeah. what's coming, it just makes your day a little bit less frazzled. I usually like to suggest people find the times in the day that are the pain points of the day. And that's where your kids need more structure, not less mm. structure. Mm. And it will help if you give it about seven days and it's just what it is, they'll get used to it. It might be like uncomfortable and annoying in the beginning, but when it's every day and it's the same thing every day, there's no argument anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And kids pick up routine quite fast. So yeah. Awesome. What is the best parenting advice you've ever received or that you have discovered yourself? I mean, I think it's about, it's just like going easy, going easier on ourselves. Like for the most part, if you are just listening to this podcast, your kids are going to do great. (laughs) Like just being conscious that you want to parent with some intention is already like, huge. So I would say there's too much parenting advice. And I say this as a person who gives parenting advice, (laughs) but there is too much. And that to, to know that, that, you know, to throw out 25% or 30% of all of it and just take a breath and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. A mentally stable, healthy parent is the best kind of parent. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lisa. This was incredible, inspiring for me, and I'm sure a lot for our listeners as well. Um, besides your podcast that everyone should absolutely check out, Raising Good Humans, where can they find you? I have a website, um, a two, two websites with for the Mount Sinai Parenting Center.org and seedlingsgroup.com. And then um, Instagram is the best way to find me on at Raising Good Humans podcast. And if anybody has any questions, you can DM me and I get to them slowly, but I do get to them. (laughs) Awesome. And her Instagram account is like really inspiring, gives lots of helpful tips. So thank you so much for all that you do. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you liked it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really is the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more of us, head over to our Instagram and follow us there at Bumo Parent. And to learn more about Bumo Brain Virtual School, follow us at Bumo Brain or head over to BumoBrain.com. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys next week.